Welcome to the Healthy Beast, Mark Omrod, Invictus Games athlete, triple amputee and former Royal Marine. And you just told me I can't say ex-Royal Marine. Why is that? Some people get very upset. We have a, we have a mantra. Once a Marine, always a Marine. I think ex has connotations of, you know, it's no longer part of your life. Whereas former kind of says to us, well, you don't wear a uniform anymore, but you will always be a Royal Marine. You aren't that Green Beret. You know, you're always part of that family. So you, so you left the Royal Marines, but you're still a Royal Marine. Exactly. Once a Marine, always a Marine. I'll never make that mistake. I don't, I'm not going to say ex-Royal Marine. You don't want them to come hunting you down, do you? Some of them get angry. <laughs> so yeah, just make sure you say former. Yeah, not the kind of people you want angry either. No, even if they're 80 plus, mate, they're still killers. You've just been telling me about your crazy busy schedule. So you're up and down the country speaking to people, interviewing people. Um, and I've been having a look at your some of your social media, at Mark Ormrod on O-R-M-R-O-D on Twitter and Instagram. It's very inspiring because you are a triple amputee. How long ago? 2007? Christmas Eve, right? 2007. Christmas Eve, 2007. And your Instagram, you're constantly working out, you in great shape, all kinds of different sports. It's a very good antidote for people who might be like, you know, feeling a bit tired, their back's hurting a little bit, got a bit of jip from the old knee. It's great to look at and see you just get out there getting after it. It, Does it ever, does does the head ever go down? You feel I can't be bothered today. That's exactly how I feel right now, if I'm honest. (laughs) I am. I don't mean being here with you. I mean, I I got up this morning. I'm like to my wife, I said, I've got such a hectic day. I'm back to back to back to back to back with Zoom calls, phone calls, traveling, physical meetings, you know, going from Plymouth to London. And I'm just like, all I really want to do is throw on Netflix. Do you know what I mean? But this is the, this is the, the important time when, when you do feel like that. And we all do. Do you know what I mean? You know, even Dwayne Johnson probably feels like that sometimes. But this is when you've got to have a little word with yourself and say, come on, you know, there's work to be done. Let's get up and do it you know, and, and shake it off. You know, that's, um, I think that's the difference that makes the difference. Are you always able to shake it off? Or do you ever have days when you just can't? No, pretty much I can. I've, I've learned over the years through, you know, reading personal development books, attending seminars, learning from other people, you know, certain strategies and techniques to be able to, to up my energy and to get myself in the right state to be able to, you know, shake that off and, and then just go at it. Do you, are you in a lot of pain? No. No, no physical pain, no mental pain, none of that. Really Just, none? No. I mean, as a triple amputee, you know, with two prosthetic legs and a prosthetic arm, sometimes, I mean, discomfort, but not pain. The pain went a long time ago, right at the beginning of the journey, you know, probably 12 months after I was injured. Um, through all the recovery and the healing, you know, that was quite painful. But after that, I think through a combination of physical training, mental training, and just pushing a little bit, I think, I I was able to nullify the pain and and just get on with life. And, um, you know, I'm I'm quite against... In, in my situation, medication, um, I never really wanted to be on that from the beginning. So I ditched it very early on in my career, in my career, in my journey, sorry. 
and focused on other ways to overcome the pain that came with my injuries so that I could live a, a long and, and healthy life, medication-free. So you, you talk about discomfort rather than pain. Do you think, do you th- was that a decision? Do you think it's the sort of, do you think what you're experiencing for another person, they might call it pain, but you've made a decision to call it discomfort because, you know, you talk, you know, you, you, you could obviously talk about terrible acute pain in, in the aftermath of your accident, but was it at some point you decided, right, that's not, that's not pain anymore. It's just discomfort and I'll just deal with it. Yeah, I think I did to a degree early on. And, and that's very important, actually. The, you know, the words I think that you use to describe certain things. You, you can call it pain or you can call it discomfort. And they're very different things. And they'll affect you mentally very differently. Do you know what I mean? By If you call something painful, you know, if you attempt to achieve something and you don't achieve it, you can call that failure or you can call that learning. You know, and those two words have very different meanings about how you have experienced that situation. So yeah, I think in the beginning, in the beginning, there's no doubt it was, it was painful. You know what I mean? You know, having both my legs traumatically ripped off my body, my right arm torn off from just above my elbow. There's obviously an initial period of, you know, six to eight months where everything's painful. Um, Just shuffling around in a bed, sitting up, Everything's tender and sore. Your body's working overtime, trying to heal everything. And you, you can't just say that's uncomfortable because it is, it is painful. You know, and then when you start putting prosthetics on initially, it is painful. You know, you're putting very tender residual limbs into a, a carbon fiber sleeve and then putting all your body weight through them. That's painful. But then your body toughens up over time. It gets used to it. It becomes normal. And then it becomes just a little bit uncomfortable. Like you might get a little sore here. I, I very rarely, and I'm very grateful that I don't, I very rarely get sores or any of that kind of stuff that's associated with wearing prosthetics. Um, but yeah, that just becomes a little bit uncomfortable. But then, and I'm not going to say you learn to live with it. Um, you, you do, but I think that's quite a negative way to look at it. It, it just becomes part of, of you and you accept it and it's not a big deal. It's, at least for me anyway, you know? Was it, was there a time during that recovery? Because I read you did, I don't know if it was an interview or just with the Daily Mail a few years back, and it said that you, um, you'd you begged your friend to shoot mm. you. I mean, right. is, is this this immediately afterwards? So after the act, so, so you, you, people that don't know your story, so you, you're out on patrol and you, you stood on an IED. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the first, and were you were you conscious during through all of it? Yeah. Through all of it. So. Yeah. So this turning to turning to was this immediately afterwards turning to your friend and saying asking him to. Yeah. So I'll, I'll run you through it. Right. So you, you've got to imagine. I at the time was twenty four years old. You know, I'd already been to to Iraq when I was nineteen. This was a second tour of duty for me. I'm three months into a six-month tour of Afghanistan. I'm six foot two. At that time, I'm weighing about 16 stone. I'm at the peak of my physical fitness. I've spent three months, you know, fighting with, with the Taliban and the enemy and just whipping their ass. You know, me and the lads just 
sent them packing all the time. Confidence is high. You literally, you know, you think you're you're unstoppable and, you know, you, this big macho alpha male. And, and you are, effectively. You're running around doing a, a very difficult job, you know, and you and there, there comes a little bit of ego with that. Do you know what I mean? Where you, you think, you know, I've done this, I've done that, blah, 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 blah. And you get trained and it gets beaten into you mentally when you go through your training that you are elite and you do have higher standards than other people and you are trained to a much higher level than other people. So like I just said, you know, when you're fighting and you're standing toe to toe with the enemy, you can, you can take on just about anybody. Right. And, and you have a lot of pride in that. So you imagine I'm walking along and I'm about to, to go farm to give, covering uh, not not fire but protection to another group of men we were working with and i kneel on this improvised explosive device okay so this thing explodes initially i can't see anything because of the the terrain that we're working in it's very dusty and sandy and then when the dust settles i look down and both my legs have been ripped off and my arms hanging on by a little flap of skin and my immediate thoughts are, and, and this sounds bizarre, and is it okay to use so power right. yeah, Of course you can, yeah. And, I, and I, I remember lying there in no pain, again, discomfort because of the way your body chemically deals with it. But I remember thinking to myself, what a prick. <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can go toe-to-toe with anybody, whether it's with a, a gun, you know, fists, and you've just been beaten by a lump of metal in the ground, an inanimate object that did nothing. It didn't, you know, ask you for a fight. It didn't step up to you. It was just there, minding its own business. And it's just whipped your ass. You're supposed to be an elite soldier and look at you. You know, and that that was like the initial thought that ran through my head. What a dick. And then almost instantly, you go from anger and a bit of embarrassment to guilt. Because then you think of everyone else, you know, there's another seven men that were with me in my section. And then you think, has this hurt any of them? You know, am I going to be responsible for that? If not, thank God. But now we're in a position where if the enemy want to come running over the hilltop with AK-47s and start shooting at us, people might die. And then that's my fault because I'm injured. Their priority is to save me. They're vulnerable. They're not on their guard. They could die because of it. So then you start feeling guilty. And then immediately after that, my eldest daughter, Kezia, was two years old. Then immediately you start thinking, well, if I survive this, how's her life going to be? I can't pick her up from school with all the kids pointing at me and, you know, asking her constantly, why is your daddy a freak? Why does your daddy look like that? So then your guilt just ramps up and up and up and up and up. And then when I happened to look around, I saw the guy in charge, uh, Corporal Sean Helsby, who we went through training together back in 2001. We were in the same troop and training. We're still connected now, still good friends. Now he's a sergeant major at the minute. But I knew him and I trusted him. And so I said, Sean, you know what I need you to do, mate? You know, just just pop me. I'm not doing this. And this is all in less than a minute. It's probably like 30 seconds. I was like, shoot me. So I took my helmet off and he was behind me. And I just closed my eyes and I, I imagined it would just be like getting punched in the back of the head, right? And then that's it, black. So I just waited and waited and waited. You know, and as I'm waiting, the anxiety's kind of building. 
I just, I'm just like, do it quick now. But he didn't, obviously. And uh, then they kicked into all the, the evacuation procedures and, uh, you know, all their drills and everything that they've been taught. And they did it phenomenally, like, like unbelievable. Okay. You know, you practice this stuff time and time and time again, and you'll, you'll fuck it up nine times out of 10. But when you've got to do it and someone's life's on the line, it, it's unbelievable to watch the way people just do it. You know, because you imagine as human beings, if you see your friend hurt, you, the first thing you want to do is run in and help him, right? But we're trained not to do that. Because if you do, you risk setting off other devices which can either further injure or kill the casualty or injure and kill yourself. And as it happens, there were six of these devices scattered around me. Um, and they all just took complete control of their emotions. You know, the guy who was in charge of the radio was radioing back to headquarters to get a, an evacuation in. The guy closest to me, his job was to get on his belly with a bayonet and start prodding the ground and then marking a safe route for when the medic gets there so he can run straight in. There's one guy who's coordinating an all-round defence. So if there is a small arms attack follow-up, they can fight it off and reduce the chance of anyone getting hurt or killed. And they just did it, you know, like this. And um, it, it was amazing. And then the, the medic got to me very quickly. I was only about 200 metres from camp. He came out, jumped in this crater that I was in, put tourniquets on my limbs, gave me morphine, put me on a stretcher. They had to, you know, they, these were not clean cut amputations. They were traumatically torn off my limbs. So like my right leg was still kind of attached. So he had to pick up my foot and, and my boot and, and put it on my stomach, put me on a stretcher, take me out of this, which was at the time, I think, after reading the report, a 12 foot crater at this point. They put me in the back of a vehicle. The vehicle then starts driving up this hill to go back into the camp where the helicopter is going to meet me. And I fell out the back with a medic. So the guy driving, swung round, reached out, grabbed and ended up grabbing my femur bone coming up my right leg. Mm. He kind of held me half in, half out the vehicle, drove me to the helicopter landing site. And the last thing I can remember is this, this helicopter landing and just being caught up in this huge sandstorm from the propeller blades and the exhaust and all that kind of stuff and then i blacked out uh, and that's that's the last thing i remember of it all so i mean it's just it's just beyond horrific for most of us to imagine and you'd presumably like because you were the only one injured in this attack but had you but you must have been involved in you know other incidents where other people were injured and seen this kind of cleanup process going on but when it's happening to yourself and you're telling it now are you are you going back there or is it because you've talked about it so many times you can talk about it without too much emotion do you feel is it does it still because you know these are these are horrendous things you're talking about you know you it must be how you get these things out of your mind i just don't know or it's not about getting them out of your mind you i i, I cannot give a, a firm answer I've, I've never been able to do it about how I can just talk about it and, and why it doesn't affect me. I think in many ways, I'm very fortunate that I was conscious throughout the whole thing because a lot of people who either they were knocked unconscious from the blast 
or for whatever reason their mind has has blocked the incident out, it comes yeah. back many years down the line. And that's when, you know, you see the, the flashbacks that like you see in movies and stuff, they start having all that. And that's where people really start to struggle. And I think because I remember it all, and I have talked about it so much over the years, that, that I'm good with it. You know, and it's actually quite therapeutic. I remember when I first started speaking about eight years ago, people were like, how can you do that? And I'm like, actually, I, I enjoy sharing the story. You know, I'm grateful that I'm here still um, and I'm alive and I'm healthy and I'm living. So I, I kind of focus on that, not the, the negative side of it, you know. And um, yeah, I made a, a kind of side hustle out of it, a bit of a career out of telling this story. Um, yeah, well, and why I just, not? I just, why not? You know, it sounds like you've made a great career out of it. When you speak to people, because you do this motivational speaking, what kinds of people are you doing it to? All kinds of businesses and all kinds of people? Mate, I've, I've done everything from a, a small school in my local area where not a mainstream school, you know, school for kids that don't fit into mainstream education. So like six children in the whole school through to 5,000 people in a in an arena, um, you know, full of very highly educated doctors and nurses and, and those kind of people. In, in England, in Singapore, in America, in Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, I've been all over. You know, it's a, it's a great way to get about, you know, and, and meet people and travel. Did you always have this like, positive? Because you said, obviously, in the immediate aftermath, you know, asking your friend to shoot you and stuff like that. Once you, and then you've, you've been evacuated and blacked out. And when you've, when you've woken up, presumably in, you know, in the field hospital or something, you've, if you're, as you're, Mindset always been positive from then, or yeah. I mean, I had a, I had a few blips, you know, like you would imagine during recovery. Um, you know, like three weeks into my recovery, a, a guy walked in my room that I hadn't met before, who had been he he was like the amputation guru in the UK. You know, he'd been in the game for thirty three years. He'd met thousands and thousands of amputees. And uh, being a, a triple amputee is very rare. And he told me that he'd never met anybody with one leg missing uh, above the knee, because it's a lot more difficult when you're above the knee than below the knee. Uh, he'd never met anybody with one leg who had success with prosthetics. So he, he basically walked in and said, you need to get yourself ready for life in a wheelchair. At 24 years old, he told me that, you know, and I was like, well, knocked on my ass. You know, I, I didn't want to hear that. I was pretty positive for those first couple of weeks in my recovery, I had a great group of people around me, great team around me. And that really knocked me for six. Uh, and then when I kind of got over that a couple of days later, I left the hospital to stay in a flat where my family were. And it was the first time I saw myself in a full length mirror. You know, I'd, I'd shaved before, but I couldn't see my, my head and shoulders. And I wheeled past a full length mirror and saw myself and like I said earlier, you know, I used to be six foot two. I used to be 16 stone, very fit and, and strong and healthy. And now I was, I think I'm about three and a half feet tall without my prosthetics on. And at that point, because I had lost three limbs and I was fighting off infections and I didn't have an appetite or anything like that. I think I was about nine stone one, something like that. So very withdrawn and gaunt looking and, you know, like a skeleton with a bit of flesh on. 
so that really got me as well. And and I and I always say this, you know, I spent the whole night crying when I saw that, you know, with my and our wife Becky in this flat, just bawling, you know, because I went from what I was to to what I am, and I thought I've got 70, 80 years to live like this now, you know, I don't really want to do that. But again, you know, it's actually it's quite quite powerful, I think, what a good cry can do, you know, and you just kind of parage it, get out of your system, wake up the next day, shake it off and crack on. So do you look back to that as the the sort of low point, the sort of turning point where you, you started pulling things back? They, they were, yeah, they were the two, they were honestly, and I, I, I'm always honest when I speak to people, I've got no shame in admitting about times I've cried and stuff, but they were honestly the only two times that I really felt negative. The rest I knew was going to be hard. I knew it was going to be difficult. And I accepted that very early on. So when things were challenging, I just told myself as part of the process, you can't just take a magic pill, put on some prosthetics and go about your life again. You've got to work your ass off. And I think fortunately, having gone through training to be a Royal Marine when I was 17, it wasn't foreign to me. To, to get knocked on my ass and have to push myself further than I thought I could. You know, I did it when I was training to be in the Marines and now I was going to have to do it with my rehabilitation. I, I knew what was lying ahead of me. I knew it was going to be difficult, but I knew what I had to do to get to where I needed to be. Well, just because pushing yourself through tough stuff was something familiar to you. So this was just a, a new tough challenge, that sort of thing. You know? Yeah. I, you know, I, I just... I, I think I knew what I was capable of physically and mentally. Uh, and I knew that this was going to require me going back to that place I'd been before. You know, it's not a place that you live in every day. It's a place where you have to go to when things get really difficult. So, you know, you imagine like a fighter, you know, with having a, a championship fight, you know, that they don't do that every day when they're in training. You know, some of their fights are very easy, but when they come up against that one guy, where they literally, they can't breathe and they've got three minutes left in a round and three minutes when you feel that way is an eternity and you've got to dig deep and you've got to keep going. Even if you're not performing at your best, you just got to mentally say, keep going, keep going because that guy's going to break before I break, you know? And in rehab, I had to kind of have those conversations with myself, but my, I was my own competition. You know what I mean? So I had to keep on pushing myself past myself and, and having that internal conflict I guess just to keep getting through those days where I was hitting brick walls and and I did I, I did it all the time because I was the first triple amputee from the conflict you know there was no one else I think except from maybe the first world war you know that was injured in conflict and had become a triple amputee so I had there was no systems in place no one had been through rehab that I was the rehab that I was going through and I had to kind of figure all this stuff out as I was going and and this is the thing you know early on I knew it and I accepted it so it was no surprise when these days came around you know and you, you just have to have a, a lot of conversations with yourself you know well, so, that, so the days you talk about you talk about expecting bad days is that what you mean expecting bad days expecting hard days expecting it not to be easy do you know what I mean well, I think if I went into it going okay cool this is going to be quite easy give me the legs let's go 
then you have one of those days where you get knocked on your ass and you weren't expecting it, then you start to question yourself, I think. You know, I say, why, why am I not able to do this? You know, I should, this should be easy or, or whatever conversation you have with yourself. But I set myself up from the beginning, knowing I was going to, knowing I was going to fail constantly and that it was going to be difficult and that I'd have to not only use my body, but my brain as well. You know, when I hit those plateaus and those brick walls and we had to try and figure stuff out that no one had figured out before. So it's almost like you're laying things down so they're not going to be any surprises for you because you're saying, look, it's going to be difficult. There's no blueprint. There's no one to say, look, he's got the same injuries as me. I can follow on and do what he's doing. You're finding it all out for yourself. And, and you're knowing that every day you're going to struggle because everything you try is new and everything you try is going to be difficult because you're trying it in a different way. So it's almost like that. You're laying out a blueprint and saying it's going to be tough, but that's part of the part of the challenge. Right. But I knew it was only temporary as well. I didn't, I, I didn't have the mindset of this is going to be tough for the rest of my life. My mindset was this is going to be tough for, I don't know, 12, 18 months. You know, you just, this has got to be your main focus. You've got to push yourself as, as hard as you can. And then the rest of your life, again, like we said, with pain and discomfort, it's not going to be easy. You know, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but it's not going to be super hard all the time. You've got to put that initial effort in now. How did you know what, what, because you didn't have this blueprint of where to go with your recovery, how did you, how did you set goals for yourself? How did you know what's a good goal when, when you don't know, what you're aiming at. Do you know what I mean? Did you have things like, I want to achieve this in six months or anything like that? So my, my very first goal was that when my unit came back, so I got injured halfway through the tour. They still had three months of the tour left. And then when they came back, they would get 10 weeks, what we call post-operational tour leave because they've been away for so long. And then we all go back to our unit and we have this big ceremonial medals parade. So the, the first big goal I set myself was that when that day came around, I wanted to walk on the parade ground. I didn't care if it was pretty, you know, if I had walking sticks, I had people either side of me, as long as I walked on that parade ground and I could stand to receive my medal, then I was happy. So that really focused me for those initial couple months when it was really painful. And every morning you wake up and you don't want to do anything. I knew that every day that I didn't do anything, was a day closer to the Meadows Parade and that increased my chance of failing. So that was really important for me initially to set, that was quite a big goal. And then in my day-to-day -day recovery, I had a whole bunch of little ones. Like if I had, had walked maybe four lengths of the parallel bars the day before, this day I'm gonna do five lengths, you know? And then the day after I'm gonna do six. So I'd set all these little ones as well, which culminated into achieving the bigger one. Um, and then as I progressed through my rehab and in my life and things started to get easier, I started to set different goals all over the place. And then I did actually, during my rehab, find a mentor over in America who had been hit by a train when he was 15. And he had lost both his legs above the knee and his right arm. And he was doing all the things that we were trying to do in rehab but we're really struggling with because no one knew how to do them. You know, it, it gets very complicated when you start throwing high tech prosthetics in the mix, Bluetooth, computer programs, setting legs up, um, 
walking upstairs, downstairs. You've got to program the legs in certain ways to be able to handle obstacles. They've got to be aligned in a certain way to make sure that you're not using too much energy to walk, that they're as energy efficient as possible. You know, there's, there's a million different things I could bore you with about prosthetics, but this guy and his team had spent six years perfecting it. So I effectively, the short version is, reached out to him, went to meet him and took six years of their successes and failures and knocked that into a three-week boot camp where I, I went over there, they trained me, mentored me and everything that they'd learned in six years, I managed to learn in three weeks. So, uh, yeah. So, so what stage after your recovery did you start doing sports, things like that? Nine years. <laughs> Nine years. So I'll tell you what it is, right? It's, it's really funny. My experience was that when I got injured and became disabled, every time, well, not every time, but eight times out of 10, when I would meet a stranger, they would say to me, so when are you going to start training for the Paralympics? And I'm like, <laughs> why are you asking me that? I, I, I've got no interest in Paralympics. You know, prior to my injuries... I, I competed in full contact kickboxing, Muay Thai, and I boxed for the Marines, right? I never did 100-meter sprints, never did long jump, never did swimming and all that kind of stuff, which is what was on offer with, with Paralympic training. None of it appealed to me. It just wasn't my thing. And my initial goal, going back to talking about goals, um, when I met those guys in America, my next big goal was to leave my wheelchair behind. You know, yeah. I didn't want to use it. And I went out to meet them on the 9th of June, 2009. And that's the last time I ever used one, you know, like 11 years ago. So that was my focus. And it takes an extreme amount of effort to achieve that. So sport wasn't a thing for me. You know, and once I'd done that, you know, I had to leave the military. I had to get a house for my family. I had to start a new career. I had more, more children. So all these things, you know, light in life were happening. And sport, I just, I just had no interest in it. And then in 2016, uh, I was sat right here where I am now, and I was sketching out my goals for the following year. And it hit me that Christmas Eve 2017 was my 10-year anniversary of, of being injured. So I thought, why don't I do something that I haven't done, you know, to mark the occasion, to celebrate. And uh, sport was the thing I hadn't done. I, I, I was still training, so I'd figured out how to, to navigate around a gym with my prosthetics, I was doing cardio. I've got a hand bike on a terrible trainer. I, I could run a little bit, although I didn't enjoy it. Uh, I did a little bit of swimming just for my health and well-being. But I had seen these Invictus Games. They were two years old at this point. Uh, and a couple of my friends that I went to rehab with had competed. And I had watched them, you know, win medals, which was great. But I had seen them outside of that arena massively improved in their in their personal life and their confidence in in their ability you know the way they were more outgoing and so I thought I'm gonna, I'll give this a shot you know this would be a great way to celebrate if I can make the team you know 10 years of, of life post-injury do a bit of sport um nice way to mark the occasion so I, I did I applied for the team was fortunate enough to make it and then represented the UK twice at, at the Invictus Games how does it work? Do you, do you sort of, do they sort of look at your injuries and say, oh, no, you have a go at this, have a go at this? Do they kind of talk to you about, because you hadn't done it before, you'd just been doing rehab. Do they talk you through the various options and say, 
you, know, you could do this yeah, or this, this, or... this. Yeah, this isn't the Paralympics. So it's not, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, it's not like the Paralympics where there's, the, you know, the rules are so strict and, you know, everyone's there because they want to win gold medals. Everyone goes into the Invictus Games for their own various different reasons. And what I mean by that is there were some people that I didn't find out till maybe two years after I'd become friends with them, that when they turned up for the, the training camps, they, they slept in their cars because they were too nervous. They had, they had problems or they couldn't overcome to get out of their car and mix with people. You know what I mean? So the games for them, their, their gold medal was just being able to go back into a group of people and a, and a sporting arena where people cheering for them. You know what I mean? Because they had such, such harsh mental issues to deal with that that was, that was a big win for them. You know, so is, you go it, there. Go on. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. Is this, have you heard this happening a lot? People becoming very isolate, isolated because yeah. of their injuries. Yeah. And it, it's not even, it, it's not even necessarily people in my position. You know, you got to imagine when I got, when I got injured, there were seven other people that had to see their friend bleeding out in a desert. Right. And that can be very traumatic. So some people mentally, physically, they, they're fine, you know, and they look fine and they are fine, but mentally they're not. And, you know, the Invictus Games is inclusive of them as well. And so, so like I said, literally, I, I, I have never had to deal with that. So I find it really difficult to comprehend that when these people confided in me and they said, you know, when I first went to that training camp, I spent two nights sleeping in my car because I couldn't even go in the hotel and be around other military people because it, it set me off and triggered me. Really? You know, and it opened my eyes, you know what I mean, to, to what people actually have to deal with, you know, mentally. I, I, would, have, I, would, I would have thought they would be, feel more, com more comfortable among military people, but, you know, and maybe it's amongst uh, civilians that perhaps wouldn't understand that they would find it more difficult. But is it, is it because being among military people brings things back to them? I think so, yeah. And, and the thing is, and another thing I learned is that everybody is completely individual. So, you know, I'm a triple amputee. I could be sat next to another triple amputee. And to look at, people would assume that we have the same challenges and our lives are the same. But underneath the surface, it's completely different. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky um, that I have the mindset that I do have, you know, partly from training for the Royal Marines but and partly from the support network that I had in place from, from the very beginning whereas other people mentally maybe don't don't look at things the way that I look on you know and, and that's why they'll, they'll struggle a little bit so you know it's it opened my eyes to a, a whole lot of different things you know and um, but it, it was just a, a great environment to be around you know, I really thrived in that environment, being around the military, you know, doing what I can to help and, and mentor other people, but also to compete again and feel, you know, like the way I used to enjoy feeling where I'm training myself to, to beat another man, you know, and go up against the best that there are and, and beat them if I can. Because you, know, you say it doesn't have the strict selection processes and everything that the of the Paralympics, but presumably when you get a bunch of military guys doing competitive sport, it's full on hundred percent competitive and you're going for it. Right. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, right? So there were, 
700 people the first year that applied and there were 72 places on the team. So yeah, it's competitive. Yeah. You have to put the work in. But what I thought was nice about it, which I think is where it's different from the Paralympics, is they don't just look at, oh, are you a good athlete? Are you fit? Are you strong? Are you healthy? Are you, are you going to win medals? There, there were 11 different criteria that the selection team looked at throughout that whole process to see whether you make the team. Right down to monitoring your social media. So you could be the fittest, fastest, strongest athlete with all these accolades behind you. But if you're on social media and you are spouting off hate and you're angry and you're trying to bait people into online arguments all the time and you wouldn't be a good representative of the team, you don't make the team. You know, there, and, and where this really hit me right, was the first year I was at a swimming camp and I was in the changing rooms after the training session. And obviously being a triple amputee, it takes me a lot longer to get dressed than it does for other people. And there was a new guy in there who had only recently had both his legs taken off above the knees. And so we're talking and we're trying to get dressed and everyone else filters out the changing room and there's just the two of us left. And so he's asking me about prosthetics and, you know, fitting them and, and the Bluetooth and what you do in this situation, what you do in that. And so I sat and I talked with him and I didn't think anything of it. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that one of the, the kind of selection committee said that they were stood outside the changing room listening to our conversation. We didn't know they were there. And because I had done that, that gave me 10 out of 10 and some sort of criteria because I was a team player and I was helping the mentor and other members of the team. You know, and I imagine that's not the case in the Paralympics, but that's how the Invictus Games was different. It's yeah. not just about winning medals, you know? So they're really looking into your, even, even eavesdropping on you to make sure that you're kind of the kind yeah, of I'm people sure they, they would, want to... I'm sure they were just walking past, you know, they weren't yeah, doing yeah. it on purpose, they just walking past and having to hear this conversation. But yeah, that, I mean, they look into that kind of stuff too. So you have to be an all-round good ambassador for the UK and for the team. When you're trying to motivate other people, do you ever get frustrated when, because, you know, it would be it would be a hard stretch to think anyone that you're talking to has been through anything like as difficult as you. So when you're having to motivate people whose problems are, by comparison, very small, does it ever, do you ever find it frustrating and sort of just, you want to just remind them what you've been through and say, or does your presence kind of negate that already? Do they not feel that they, they're able to share their little problems with you, little normal world problems with you? No, no, no. People, people do share um, all, all the time, you know, either face-to-face -face or through social media or email or something. But I think what I've learned over the years is that everyone, everyone's issues are relevant to their situation because of who they are. You know, so someone's hamster dying could be as traumatic to them as me losing three limbs was to me. Do you know what I mean? So you can't judge people and say, oh, that's only a small problem because it's to them it's not. I don't know their background or their history. I just know what they're telling me in the moment. You know, so you kind of, I take everything as it is. And, you know, if I can help, I will. If, if I can't, then, then I can't. But you, you just got to kind of have that mindset of, okay, to me, a hamster dying, 
great. I'll wrap it in cotton wool. I'll put it in a shoebox and I'll bury it and throw it in the garden. That's how I deal with it. But it could have been this guy's best friend for whatever reason. You know, there could be some sort of connection to God knows what that, you know, that has really affected them. So I guess you, I just listen, you know, and, and I just try and just converse with people and give them, give them time, really. You know, that's, that's what a lot of it is, is listening, giving people time. In terms of motivation, I don't go out and try to motivate people. You know, like you see these people on, on, on telly, you know, running around high-fiving each other, you know, saying, you know, the world's great. I'm lit, bro. I'm on fire. That That's great in certain settings, I think. You know, you said earlier about do I always wake up motivated? You know, sometimes you have to give yourself a little bit of that and, and shake it off and just get up. But motivation is is temporary. You know, it doesn't last. What you need is a reason why and a goal and a focus. That's what lasts. You know what I mean? So what I mean by that is when I first got hit, I had to think, why do I want to get better? Why do I want to leave my wheelchair behind? Why do I want to be a full-time prosthetic user? And my answers were for my family, because I'll be less of a burden to people if I can look after myself. For the Royal Marines, because they train me to a high standard. I've earned a green beret. Everyone that looks at me now that knows my story knows my background. So I have to still represent the Royal Marines and, and those standards in everything I do to the highest possible level. And for other people, people watching social media, people, you know, finding me online, people that are listening when I'm, when I'm talking. You know what I mean? Those are my reasons why. And because I think I made it about more than me, it became more powerful. You know, I, I made it about other people as well as myself. And, and that, for me, made it more powerful and gave me more of a boost. How long ago did you get involved with, with Reorg, which people don't know Reorg is? Maybe you could tell us is the sort of, sort of servicemen's jiu-jitsu organisation. How does it? So that, that's how it started. Um, so I touched on earlier, you know, prior to my injuries, I was a martial artist from about 12 years old. And then when I got injured... I had a couple of people from different disciplines um, approach me and say, oh, do you want to come and train this martial art? Or do you want to come and train that martial art? You know, we can get you to a black belt standard no matter what your injuries. And, and I just knew it was bullshit. Because of my experience, you know, these disciplines involved kicking, punching, catters, those kind of things that I couldn't do. And I didn't want, as much as I wanted martial arts back in my life, I didn't want to do it on sympathy I wanted to do it on hard work and, and effort and then one day I was in the sergeant's mess at uh, Royal Marines headquarters down here in Plymouth and a man called Sam Sheriff colour sergeant Sam Sheriff approached me he's a physical training instructor in the Marines and he asked me if I wanted to try jiu-jitsu now when I was growing up and I went through that phase of trying karate to taekwondo, jiu-jitsu, and all these other things. I had trained jiu-jitsu, but I didn't know that what I had done was traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu. And he was asking me to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so I just thought, oh, here we go again. Another guy is going to promise me this, promise me that. You know, he's going to feel sorry for me. And, you know, I'm going to have to politely decline him. But because he was a, a Royal Marines physical training instructor... You know, I thought, I'm gonna, I'll go down and see what it's all about. You know, I've got to at least give them that. 
And so I went down to the combat room that he had set up, which was all it was was a converted squash court that had mats on the floors and mats on the walls. And I went in there and, mate, I, I just, I was just like, what am I doing? This isn't jujitsu. I, I, when I was a kid, I was running, jumping, rolling over people, break falling, doing these wrist locks and throws. And I'm like, why am I on the ground getting arm barred and choked? And what is this? And then he kind of explained to me the difference. And, you know, it's about grappling and ground fighting. And I was like, well, I can do this because I'm sat down with no legs on. I'm on the ground anyway. <laughs> I'm here anyway. <laughs> I don't have to kick or punch anybody. So I'm already at an advantage. And then I started figuring out, in many ways, I'm at more of an advantage because I've got less stuff for people to grab. Do you know what I mean? I only had one arm that I had to defend from people. Yeah. They can't grab yeah. something that's not there. And when I finished, I felt like shit when I finished because I wasn't used to my body rolling around. You know, I had a headache and I thought I was going to throw up and I was really dizzy because my body was moving in this way that it hadn't moved for a long time. You know, rolling, being upside down and all this kind of stuff. But I loved it. You know, I was breathing out my ass. I was sweating. You know, I felt like I'd been in, I had been in a fight, which is a feeling that, you know, I, I thought I'd never get again. You know, when I used to enjoy that adrenaline, you know, that spike, you know, that fight or flight. And I was like, I can, I could probably do this based on merit and hard work, not on people feeling sorry for me. And so I pursued it. And, you know, I last week got my first strike on my blue belt. Oh, um, nice. So been doing it for about three years now. Amazing. And for anyone who, like, anyone who hasn't tried jiu-jitsu, that, that experience of, of yours, how you felt after, after your first role, that's the same for anyone, like, whatever their, yeah. you know, injuries or not. If you've not done it before, it's that totally kind of alien experience where you're like, oh, God. And you yeah. people either people either hate it and never come back, and that's about 60% of people. But... Right. <laughs> but those that can get through they they tend to love it so, so i did the same thing as i did before with the royal marines training the rehab i came away from that session and told myself the same thing it's going to be hard you got to find ways around things because i doubt there's any other people in this situation training jujitsu but it's short term you know that white belt phase is, is short-term pain for long-term gain once you get through that Game on. So they, do they just have to? Do you have t- teachers that just organise things around you, or do you have do you have other amputees that you train with, and you just just a mix of people? It, it's um, it's a mix. I'm very fortunate in that um, Sam, he's a black belt now. He's basically my personal coach. So prior to COVID, I did train with a lot of able-bodied people of different weights, different belt colors, uh, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, it's hard. It's still difficult. Um, but now I kind of just one-on-one train with Sam a lot of the time. We've got a, we have a small little core group here in Plymouth that train of guys that have physical and mental injuries. And uh, we travel all over and, you know, I train with able-bodied civilians and I train with, you know, disabled veterans but we also work with their emergency services now as well so police fire brigade ambulance service coast guard you know all that kind of stuff yeah i mean i'm a big advocate advocate for i think everyone should do jujitsu but um 
I mean, maybe it's not for everyone, but I think it, you know, it's, it's for a lot more people than even do it now. I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing for mm. people, and particularly, you say, people with injuries, you know, of, of, of all levels. And they, you, if, you can't do, if you can't do punching and kicking, I think jiu-jitsu is a brilliant thing. But also the community it gives you, yeah. which I think military guys have from the get-go. You know, they're used to that. But for a lot of people that don't have that, Jiu-jitsu is, is, I think, a very useful thing and, and very useful skills for everyone to be learning. It's the closest brotherhood and, and sense of camaraderie that I've experienced since leaving the military. The stuff you learn on the mat translates into your life off the mat. So, you know, you imagine straight away you've got a someone who's never been in the military, who's never trained martial arts, and they go to their first class and they feel the way everyone feels, but they pursue it and they keep going and they keep going and they're building resilience and strength and all that stuff that they've never really been in a situation to have to do before. They're, they're bringing so many qualities into their life outside of the dojo. They probably don't even realize, you know what I mean? You, you're learning to be resilient. You're learning that, you know, you're getting humbled. So Jimmy Johnson as well, he was the overseeing professor of, of reorg. He brought his son down once to train with us. His son was 15. Well, I didn't know that. I, I had no idea. I already, I'd never met him before. And he was a blue belt. And we were training and I was in his guard. And I'm sat up and I'm pushing my, my hand down on his chest to stop him sitting up. And he looked me in the eye, right? And he sat up like the Terminator, right? Really slow. Not, not like a jerky sit up, like just sat up eyeballing me the whole way. And I'm like, I'm like a 30-odd-year-old former Royal Marine. I found out after that this guy's 15 and he beat the shit out of me, right? And he humbled me. And so you learn all these things, you know, that, are, that I think are really valuable in life, you know, outside of, of that setting. Yeah, because you talked about, I mean, you talked about before your before your injuries, so you, you were kind of, you felt... No one could hurt you, this kind of thing. You're kind of super tough, super tough soldier, which I guess even if whatever kind of person you are, having your arrogance brought down a bit, which jiu-jitsu does, and I guess unfortunately other things in life do it as well, but mostly it's a it's a useful thing, I think, for your for how you feel, to have your ego broken down. Because that thing of that thing of thinking no one can hurt you. I mean, you know, there are tougher people and less tough people, but everyone is everyone's vulnerable, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just, I don't know. I could go on for days telling you about all the benefits of it. But you, you know them, you know. Um, and it, I think it's very healthy to be humbled uh, regularly. Yeah, and I'll give you another example. So last week, myself and Sam were training. I've got a setup in my garage. And he, he was, it was awful. By the end of the session, I honestly thought I was going to die. And he was lying on his back and I didn't notice to start with, but he put both of his arms in his belt. And he was basically saying, I'm not going to use my arms. And when I, when I saw it, I was like, inside, I, I just laughed. And I'm like, you're going to get it now, mate. This, I'm going to hammer you. I couldn't pass. All he used was his feet and I couldn't pass his guard for like 25 minutes straight trying to pass his guard. And he, he just had his arms tucked in his belt and I still couldn't pass him. And I was like, holy shit. That's how you humble someone. Do you know what I mean? 
and uh, and I, I took so much away. That was a, the session actually after I got the, the stripe on my blue belt. But I came away from that and my mind was blown, you know, to another level of what people can do, you know, and, and their capabilities and what the human body can do. And uh, it's just another real great lesson for me. I, I just got, I, I was so buzzed after that, like that I got my ass kicked for 25 minutes. You know, I, I just, I couldn't explain it. I was just going on. I was speaking for days about it to my, to my wife, about how good it was and, and how much I got out of that experience. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. I'm, I'm the same. I don't stop going on about it to people. Yeah. We're, just, we're just praying they let us keep training, you know, yeah. the, the way the well, world's we, going got, at the moment. We are, we, me and Sam have to do these tests all the time and make sure that we're clean, you know. Um, yeah. we, we don't train without getting tested. We've got, we've got our own kits that we've got. Yeah, well, that's good. You, you talked before about people's reaction to you, and you said you were what your your initial thing was being worried about, you know, kids' reactions and stuff. Um, obviously, people they can't help how they react when you meet them in public. But have you? I guess by now, have you kind of been through all the different responses people give? You know, whether it's kids or stuff like that. Are you kind of are you kind of um, rehearsed in your responses to everything now? Yeah, pretty much. It's um, so if it's sort of mummy, what's wrong with that man? That sort of thing. You're ready for all that. Yeah. And sometimes, and, and it's all situation dependent. So one time I was in Morrison's, and I'm I'm always very aware of what's going on around me. I don't know if it's through military training. I, I trained as a bodyguard as well, so you've got to be like, I'm not saying hyper vigilant, but I'm always aware. Mm. And I was looking through the, the coffee, and I could hear these kids behind me really playing up. Right. So I turned around and looked, and there's like three kids, and you could see the mum was like at her wit's end. And so I carried on and, and I, I know what's gonna happen. And, and everything went silent, right? And I was like, they've seen me now. And I've got my back to them and I'm looking through the coffee. And uh, I hear one of them go, Mummy, mummy, look at that man's legs. What happened to him, mummy? And so I turned around and I looked at the mum and I'm like, Do you mind if I explain? She's like, No, no, please do. And so I looked at these three kids and I went, when I was younger, in fact, how old are you? He's like, eight. I'm like, I was eight. I was exactly the same age as you. And I was in a supermarket with my mum and I was being really naughty and I didn't do anything she told me. And then I had an accident. And then this is what happened to me. And all these three kids are like, and the mum just smiled from behind her more. And she's like looking at me as if to say, thank you so much. And then the kids just shut up. And I said, well, I've got to go now, guys. I've got to go meet up with my wife. See you later on. And hopefully they just behave. <laughs> so it's all like situation dependent. Do you know what I mean? Maybe their lives took a turn for the better from that moment. Uh, their oh, mum's still thanking you. Hopefully. And you've got to have fun with it. Do you know what I mean? You know, my whole look on it is if I cared what people thought, or if I wasn't willing to talk about it, why am I walking around in shorts and t-shirt with these prosthetics on show? You know what I mean? I'd, I'd be wearing trousers. I'd be hid in the car. I wouldn't leave the house if I was that. If I was bothered about it, it's I put myself out there. You know, I walk around with these prosthetics on show. I can't expect people not to look, to ask questions, to point, especially children. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, kids can't help it. You know, they see something they don't understand. They want to. They want to exactly. ask questions, which is quite which is quite normal. But as you say, dealing with it 
with humour or with a bit of a stinger like you did. I think it's got to be the best way. Absolutely. Hey, Mark, I'm, I'm conscious I've got to let you go. It's been amazing talking to you, though. You too, mate. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for sharing those stories because they are, they are so inspirational. If people want to find out more, so your, your website is markormod.com. Yeah, and so And socials, you're at markormod on Instagram. Facebook, Facebook. Twitter, Instagram. I've even got, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say, a TikTok account. As long as people do what you're doing and constantly putting a positive message out there, it's great. So at markormod everywhere and markormod.com. That's it, you got it. Amazing to talk to you. Thanks so much. Good luck with everything with your very busy day. Thanks, Rich, Thanks mate. Let's speak soon. Cheers, mate. Take Thank care. you. Cheers, bye. Thanks again to Mark Ormrod. That's Mark, O-R-M-R-O-D dot com. Mark Ormrod.com. And it's at Mark Ormrod on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything. Healthy Beast is at Healthy Beast Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.